Psalm 2 is the Old Testament reading for today. Revelation eleven fifteen through 19 is the sermon text. Let's give now our attention to the reading of God's most holy word. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now let us go to Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. It is there that we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So far the reading of God's holy word, we do pray blessing upon the preaching of it as well. I wrote a little poem to summarize this passage. It goes like this. The book of Revelation has done it again. It has taken us to the time of the end. When the first six trumpets did resound, they revealed how things would be in the here and the now. But when the seventh trumpet by us was heard, it showed how things will be after Christ's return. And what a marvelous sight to behold. All things belong to Christ. His people are safely home. While the angels and saints rejoice on that day, the wicked do wish they could run away. For it is then the wrath of the Lamb will come. The nations raged, but now is the time for the dead to be judged. Then the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of Christ. No more sin nor suffering, even death will be silenced. O Christian, take comfort in these God-inspired words. May they move you to have Christ as Lord today and until he returns. As I was preparing for this sermon, it dawned on me that you might have forgotten that we were in the midst of the trumpet cycle. It's been some time, hasn't it, since we've talked about the seven trumpets. A thumb back to Revelation 8.6, just real quick, if you have your Bibles open before you. Revelation 8.6. It is here that the trumpet cycle begins. We read these words. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first trumpet, you'll notice, was blown in 8.7. The second in 8.8, eight, 
the third in 810, and the fourth was blown in 812. And then in 813, we read these very important words. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. And what did the eagle say except this? Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so here we were warned that the remaining three trumpets, trumpets five, six, and seven, would be particularly significant and filled with woe for the earth dweller, which is the way that the book of Revelation refers to those not in Christ. It was in 9-1 that the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and it was in 9-13 that the sixth angel blew his. And with each of these trumpet blasts, something was revealed to us concerning the judgments of God that would be poured out upon the ungodly throughout the church age, in the age between Christ's first and second coming. This is what the trumpets have revealed to us, something of the judgments of God that would be poured out upon the ungodly throughout the church age. And then we came to the interlude of chapters 10 and 11. Five sermons were devoted to those two chapters. And also there were three other sermons delivered by other preachers in that time. So about two months have passed since you have heard anything about the trumpet cycle. So it's distant in our memories, but I'm I'm trying to bring you up to speed again. Uh, Remember that the interlude, particularly chapter 11, gave attention to the question, how will it be for the people of God as they live upon the earth in the midst of a wicked world? upon which the judgments of God are being poured out. And so the trumpets themselves reveal something about the judgments of God, but the interlude, especially of chapter 11, is focusing in upon the question, what about God's people in the midst of it? How will they fare? How will they carry on? And the answer given was that though the people of God be trampled underfoot, God will ultimately protect, preserve, and vindicate his faithful witnesses. And remember that near to the end of chapter 11, We were given a small glimpse of the beginning of the end when Christ returns to rescue his intensely persecuted bride and to judge the wicked who are persecuting. 11.12, look there. Then they, that is the two witnesses, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Remember, this here is a description of the beginning of the end. It describes when the Lord returns to rescue his persecuted bride and to begin to judge those enemies of him. Uh, That is what is described there at the end of chapter 11. Now, friends, notice that with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, here in verse 15, the scene shifts geographically from earth to heaven and also temporally from the moment of Christ's return to a description of the state of affairs brought about by his return. Do you you notice the shift here as we move from chapter 11 uh, and the interlude on into verse 15 of chapter 11 and the blowing of the seventh trumpet. The focus shifts from what happens on earth to what happens in heaven, and the focus also shifts temporally from the moment of Christ's return to the state of affairs brought about by his return. Uh, The relationship between 11.12 through 13 and 11.15 through 19, I think, can be compared to the relationship uh, between the story 
of the Allied troops storming the beaches of Normandy and the account of their taking Normandy. You do understand that it's one event, isn't it? It's all one event when considered from a certain perspective. It's, it's the taking of Normandy, let's say. But really that event can be considered in stages, can't it? There certainly is a distinction between the initial storming of the beach and the securing of that place and the taking of that place. And that is what we have here in the book of Revelation. We have a transition from a focus upon the initial return of Christ to a description of how things will be immediately after his return. Uh, The important thing to notice is that the seventh trumpet takes us to the other side of Christ's return and to a time beyond the age in which we now live. And I want you to notice that five things will happen on that day, according to this passage. Five things will happen on that day, according to this passage. First of all, notice that it is on that day that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of Christ. In fact, I think I have four things for you and not five, so please uh, forgive that error. One, notice that it is on that day that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of Christ. Look at verse 15. When the seventh angel blew his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so something very significant will happen on that day. The kingdom of this world that is those kingdoms which oppose the rule of Christ and seek to establish their own rule independent of him, will be no more. Only the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ will remain. Everything will belong to him. Everyone will worship and serve him. On that day, he will begin to rule without challenge or rival. Now, it is true that our Lord reigns supreme even now. Amen? He does. He is Lord Most High. He is supreme. No one and no thing is able to thwart his purposes. But according to his infinite wisdom, he has decreed that for a time there exists a rival kingdom. A kingdom of darkness. A kingdom not of heaven but of earth. This he has permitted according to his wisdom in order to bring about his ultimate purposes. Also it is true that the kingdom of heaven has already broken in upon us. It arrived with spirit-wrought power at the first coming of Christ. Remember John the Baptist's message. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember the preaching of Christ himself. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, This was their proclamation. Indeed, when Christ rose from the dead, he rose in power and he ascended where? To the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns over his kingdom even now with all authority having been given to him. And so the the current situation is this. The kingdom of Christ has begun. It has broken in upon us. It has intruded into human history. We feel the power of it. Indeed, we are in it if we are in Christ by the Spirit, confessing him as Lord. But we know that the kingdom is not here in its full and consummate glory. And, And why is that? Well, In part because there still exist rival kingdoms in the world today. Many stubbornly refuse to bow the knee to Christ. Many do not confess him as Lord. Many are the citizens of the kingdom of this world who oppose Christ's rule, submitting instead to the rule 
of another king. And so as you can see, there are two kingdoms present in the world today, aren't there? There are two kingdoms, two powers present in the world today. Um, One has Christ as king, the other has the evil one for a king. There is the kingdom of heaven, also called the kingdom of God and of his Christ, and there is the kingdom of this world. These two kingdoms are opposed to one another. All who live on the earth are, in fact, in one kingdom or another. That is what so many fail to recognize in our day. You are in a kingdom. You have something or someone as Lord. You are not ultimately free, but you are in bondage to to someone as Lord. You are either Christ, he is your king, or you belong to the evil one, he is your king. Christ himself said, whoever is not with me is against me, Matthew 12, 30. And listen to the way that Paul describes our salvation in Colossians 1, 13. Listen to these words. He describes it as having been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he's writing to Christians, and here is how he talks to them concerning their salvation. He says to them, you, the moment that you came to faith in Christ, the moment that you confessed him as Lord, you were translated or transferred from one kingdom to another. You used to belong to the kingdom or the domain of darkness, but now you have been brought under the domain of Christ into his kingdom. You are citizens now of his kingdom. This is in part what it means to be saved. It is to be delivered from one domain or kingdom to another, from the domain of darkness to the domain of Christ. Those who do not have Jesus as Lord usually believe themselves to be free, independent from any outside rule, but they're badly mistaken for the scriptures teach that you are either a bondservant of Christ or that you are in bondage to another. And Satan is a very cruel taskmaster, isn't he? He is a liar, he is a deceiver, his end is death and destruction, and he is bent on taking as many with him as possible. But here is the thing to recognize. These are two kingdoms present in the world today. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. Christ's kingdom is here. It is present wherever the church is. It is present wherever men and women are found who have Christ as Lord. But it is not here in its full and final form. Uh, This is why, as citizens of this inaugurated kingdom, we are taught to pray for its consummation, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we live in this age, in the kingdom of Christ now, but yet we still pray for its consummation. Lord, come quickly, we say. Your kingdom come in fullness is our prayer. I think Hebrews 10, 12 through 13 sums it up all in a couple of verses. It says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. And so this one verse does say it all. These two verses say it all. Christ began to reign over his kingdom when? Upon his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God. That is when he began to reign over his kingdom. But while he rules there, he is also waiting there. And what is he waiting for there? He is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is the thing that Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 and onward describes. 
It describes that day when the enemies of Christ will be made a footstool for his feet. On that day, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. All will be Christ's kingdom. No rival power will remain. This is what Revelation chapter 11 is describing to us. I want you to notice, and this is very important, that this is not the description of some half-baked, earthly, and sin-prone millennial kingdom. It is not the millennial kingdom of the dispensational premillennialists here, but it is instead a description of the full and final kingdom of our Lord. That is what we have here in this text. Our God and his Christ are said to be Lord over all in this kingdom. All is his kingdom here. And the text says that he shall reign in this kingdom for how long? For just a short time? For a thousand years? No, but rather forever and ever. It is a myth, friends, that Christ will return in the future to establish some new earthly and sin-prone kingdom that will come to an end after a thousand years being brought to an end by a great rebellion, a second fall or something like that. Uh, That view is unbiblical and it comes from a misreading of the scriptures. In particular, it arises when men assume that the book of Revelation is mainly about our future and that it is to be interpreted literally whenever possible And that the order, and this is especially true, of the book of Revelation corresponds to the order of events in human history. This is the thing that produces that that premillennial scheme. I think I've shown that all three of these assumptions, especially the one about the book of Revelation being chronological in its ordering, are false. Um, This flawed method of interpretation is the one that produces premillennialism. It's the one that produces charts like this one here. Do you remember these? It's the one that produces charts like this one here. You've seen these even recently. It's the one that produces charts like this. Here's my favorite. Do you notice how infinitely complex these charts are? Why are they complex? It's because interpreters, they read the book of Daniel and they read the New Testament, and they read the book of Revelation in particular, and they think this book is describing the order of events chronologically. And so they come to the book of Revelation and to a description of this aspect of the end or that. And then they spread those descriptions of this particular event or that over a period of 1,007 years in the case of pre-tribulational premillennialism. And you end up with this very complex system or chart. Here is my chart. (laughs) There was the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant looked forward to the coming of Christ and promised concerning it time and time again. He came, didn't he? He was born to a virgin, born in a manger. He lived for 33 some odd years. And he died on a cross. He died, he went into the grave, he rose again. And then what did he do except ascend to the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns now, where he is awaiting the day when his enemies will be made his footstool. We are under the new covenant, aren't we? Not the old any longer. And what are we awaiting for? Some half-baked millennial kingdom that will eventually fall? That is prone to sin? That has some strange mixture of glorified saints with non-glorified saints living together somehow? I, I, I don't understand how it could possibly be. No, that is not our hope. But heaven is our hope. The new heavens and the new earth are our hope. And when will they come? They will come When Christ returns. 
And what will Christ do when he returns? He'll do a lot when he returns on that day. These various descriptions of, of, of events that will take place in the time of the end are not meant to be spread out over a thousand and seven year period of time, but rather we see that the book of Revelation recapitulates over and over again, giving us a different glimpse on the same day. All of these events happen virtually at once. The last day is going to be a full day, brothers and sisters. It's going to be a very busy day. Revelation eleven fifteen describes the beginning of Christ's eternal kingdom. This is a description of the new heavens and the new earth where all is placed fully under the authority of Christ with no rival. For on that day his enemies will be fully and finally judged. The praise that is heard from the lips of the angels confirms it. Verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. That is what happens on this day. The Lord and his Christ begin to reign. Not as if they have not reigned at all before. But they begin to reign in this full and consummate sense. When the enemies of Christ and the rivals of Christ will be judged and will be no more. On that day the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Two. Notice that it is on that day that the dead will be judged. Look at verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. Surely the phrase, the nations raged, is meant to remind us of Psalm 2, which was read at the beginning of this sermon. The prophecies of Psalm 2 will be fulfilled most fully when On the day when Christ returns. It is a messianic psalm. And certainly some things were fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But it will be fulfilled most fully when the Lord returns. Indeed, in this present evil age, to quote Psalm 2 verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Does that not describe the world in which we live? Where the kings of this earth do that very thing. They say, we will be independent from God and from Christ. We will establish our own kingdom. We will live according to our own way. And even now, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Could you imagine our Lord sitting in heaven now? How does he view all of this? It is, it is funny to me how, how important we think we are. I don't know if you ever just step back and try to view things from God's perspective. You know, you have these powerful world leaders. You have these rich and famous people who think so much of themselves. And you even have some who are not powerful nor rich and famous. And they still think very much of themselves as if they are the center of the universe. Have you ever thought of what that looks like from God's perspective? As he looks down from heaven upon it all. Here is what he does. The psalmist says he he laughs. He holds them in derision. It's almost comical the way that we creatures tend to elevate ourselves and seek to have the place of God. And indeed the Lord has already set his king on Zion, his holy hill, Psalm 2.6. When did this happen? Well, it happened in the heavenly places. Read the book of Revelation and the book of Hebrews in particular. It happened 
at Christ's first coming when he ascended to the Lord's right hand in the heavenly places. But Revelation eleven fifteen and following is showing us something of the day on which the nations will become the heritage of the Christ and the ends of the earth his possession. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. vessel. That is Psalm 2, 7 through 9. Therefore, when the... When the book of Revelation in verse 18 says the nations raged, it is meant to draw our attention back to this very famous psalm, Psalm 2. And the message is this, this is happening now here in the book of Revelation. Therefore, the peoples of the earth in the psalm are appropriately warned concerning that day. How does the psalmist warn warn them? The psalmist says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss who? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Christ. Kiss the Messiah who is here being prophesied of long before he ever came. Kiss the Son. Make amends with him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 warns of the final judgment and urges men and women to live according to it, taking refuge in Christ. When John in Revelation eleven eighteen says the nations raged, he is summoning Psalm 2 as if to say these two texts are talking about the same event. They are both about this final judgment. In Revelation 11, the final judgment is mentioned only briefly. Do you notice that? It's barely mentioned. It's the time now for the, the, the dead to be judged. But in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 13, we will find a more detailed description of the final judgment. It is there that John will write, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Here is a description, a more detailed one, of the final judgment. So how could it be that the book of Revelation mentions and and reveals something about the final judgment, both in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 and following, and then again in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13? How could that be? The answer is, the book is not ordered according to chronology, the book recapitulates again and again. We've already seen this to be the case. It will be the case over and over again until we conclude our study of the book. The book tells us the same story again and again from different vantage points and gives us greater insight into certain events as the book progresses. What Revelation 20, 11 through 13 describes in uh, some detail, Revelation eleven eighteen mentions only in passing. For now, brothers and sisters, simply notice this, that the beginning of Christ's consummate reign and the day of judgment coincide. This is very significant if you're trying to sort out your view of the end, by the way. The day of Christ's consummate reign, the day that that reign begins and the day of judgment happen, according to Revelation 11, on the same day. So if your view of the end spreads them out by a thousand years, you have something a little bit off. Indeed, these two things happen at once. The Lord will return, he will begin to reign, and on that day, the text says, the dead will be judged according to what they have been 
that they have done. Three, notice that it is on that day that those who belong to Christ will be rewarded. This also will happen on that day. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. I wonder, brothers and sisters, did you know that Christians will be judged too? Did you know that? That Christians will be judged too? We spend an awful lot of time talking about how because of Christ's finished work on the cross and our faith in him, Christians will not be judged. Is that true? It is. There's wonderful truth there. But it is also true that Christians will go through a kind of judgment. They will not be judged in the same way that those not in Christ are judged. They will not stand before the great white throne, as it is described in Revelation 20, to be judged according to what they had done. That judgment can only lead to damnation. For who could possibly stand through that judgment? No, the one trusting in Christ has had their sins covered by Christ's blood. He paid for their sins and he has given them his righteousness. So if you are trusting in Christ, you will not be among the dead who are raised to stand before the great white throne to be judged there. For you will already be alive in Christ. Your name is in the book of life. You will not stand before that great white throne to be judged either to damnation or salvation based upon what you have done because you are trusting in Christ who has done it all for you. Indeed, we should be comforted by the fact that we will not have to stand before the great white throne to to be judged unto damnation. We should rejoice greatly in that. We should rejoice that we will not be judged concerning whether we will go to eternal life or eternal death based upon what we have done in this life because none will stand in the face of that. But I do believe that we should talk more about the judgment of Christians unto rewards. For it is a kind of judgment, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? Here we are told that Christians will be rewarded on that day. Is that not a kind of judgment though? For how can you reward someone for something without making a judgment about what it is that they have done in this life? I believe that Christians need to be more sober about this fact that we will, as Christians, stand before God, not as judge, but as father, and we will be held accountable in one way or another for that which we have done in this world as his people. I am very concerned that you do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we will in any way contribute to our salvation. I'm not saying that our obedience in this life will have anything to do with our eternal destiny. All of that comes down to the question, are you trusting in Christ or are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in his righteousness or your own? I I hope I am clear there, but I am desiring to make this point. Christians will give an account. We will stand before God, our Father, and give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. This will be a fatherly judgment, not unto condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, but it will be a judgment unto rewards or the lack thereof. This seems to be what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Corinthians. Listen to his words in 1 Corinthians 3.10 and following. He said, according to the grace of God given to me, I, like a skilled master builder, laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He's talking about the work of the ministry here. But here is what he says and here is how he warns. 
Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Disclose it. What, what, what day is he referring to here? It's the day that Revelation 11 mentions in passing. It's a day that has to do with uh, the saints being rewarded because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to Christians, to the saints. He's saying, take care how you build. Take care what you do in this world. The day will disclose what kind of work it is. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you hear the Apostle Paul warning us then as Christians? Yes, rejoice in the fact that you will not stand before the great white throne judgment. Rejoice that you have Christ's righteousness at your, as your own through faith in him. Rejoice that your sins have been washed away. You can add nothing to that. It is all by grace and it's received through faith. But we will still give an account on that day. There will still be a kind of judgment that Christians um, will pass through. It is one unto rewards. And my prayer for you, friends, is that you would not be one of these who, though you be saved, be saved only as one who has passed through the fire with nothing to show for it. Do not be the Christian, who, though, who, though his faith be sincere and, and though his faith be saving faith, his life be devoted to things of little eternal value. Brothers and sisters, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. These are the words of our Lord in Matthew six nineteen through 20. Four, notice that it is on that day that the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. Look at the last line of verse 18. It simply says, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Who are the destroyers of the earth? When we take into consideration the way that this phrase is used in the prophets, especially in Jeremiah and Daniel, and when we take into consideration what is depicted in the rest of the book of Revelation, we must come to the conclusion that the destroyers of the earth are the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot, along with all of the men and women who follow them and do their bidding, but particularly the wicked kingdoms of this world. On that day, God will destroy these destroyers. God's wrath will be poured out upon those who lead astray the people of God, and they are now destroyed themselves. I do have five points. Five Notice that it is on that day that the people of God will enjoy the fullness of his presence forevermore. Look at verse 19 with me. Then God's temple, where? In heaven, was opened. Kind of reminds me of what happened in the earthly temple upon Christ's resurrection, what, uh, upon his death. What happened to the veil in that temple? It's torn in two from top to bottom, doesn't it? Make that connection. I think it's a significant one. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And what was seen? The ark of his covenant was seen 
Within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. The temple, as we have learned, symbolizes what? It symbolizes God's presence with his people. The Ark of the Covenant also symbolizes God's presence with his people, and it particularly emphasizes his covenantal faithfulness. God is faithful to his covenant. This vision concludes with John seeing the temple open before him and the Ark of the Covenant is revealed. The meaning is clear. God is now with his people and his presence will be enjoyed by them in a most immediate way, beginning on that last day. Beginning on that last day. Notice that John also saw flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. This scene is one that appears repeatedly in the book of Revelation whenever the final judgment is in view. God will be a comfort to his people with his presence on that day, but he will judge his enemies. I think to come kind of full circle back to the introduction of the seven trumpets, it's important to remember that Jericho story. Do you remember it? It's kind of the story upon which the imagery of the seven trumpets is based For seven days, the people of Israel were to march around Jericho and seven priests were to blow seven trumpets. And on the seventh day, they would walk around seven times blowing their trumpets. And what would happen to the walls of the city? They would lay down flat and the people would run in and there would be a kind of final judgment, a a typological final judgment that would come upon that enemy city. Here, I simply wish to remind you of the central place that the Ark of the Covenant played in this event. It was constantly before the people. And what did it symbolize there before the armies of Israel except this? God is present with you. And also it symbolizes this. The presence of God will be a terrifying thing to the enemies of God. A comfort to the people of God, but a terrifying and terrible thing to the enemies of God. It is a symbol of comfort, though, to the covenant people I do wish to take a little bit of time to apply these truths before we conclude. The first point of application is theological. I do wonder if your eschatology, your understanding of the time of the end, is biblically sound. And I would ask you this, does your view of the end square with what this passage teaches? And I am afraid that many in our day hold to a view that cannot square with it. Theirs are the infinitely complex charts that insert gaps of time in between the many things that are to happen on that last day. The scriptures teach that the last day will be a full day. On that day, the Lord will return to raise the dead in Christ and to rescue those through rapture who are alive on the earth, enduring persecution. On that day, the Lord will pour out his wrath upon the persecutors living upon the earth. On that day, the dead will be raised and judged, and those in Christ will be rewarded. On that day, the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. On that day, the kingdom of the earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ. On that day, all will become temple. The last day will indeed be a very full day, a busy one. The pre-tribulational, pre-millennialists are wrong to take these individual events and to spread them out over 1,007 years. There is an unbiblical system thrust upon the text of Scripture, and it is often found crammed into the gaps. You say, where is the gap of time? Well, it is here. It is here in the gaps of the text. And I'm urging you, if you have not already, to abandon that system and to adopt instead the amillennial position which I am in the process of describing to you throughout this sermon series on the book of Revelation. But secondly, 
In light of the final judgment, I do ask you this. Have you taken refuge in Christ? Have you taken refuge in him? Did you hear the psalmist as he described the time of the end, as he described the day when when the wrath of, of the sun comes? What does he then urge the kings of the earth to do? He says, kiss the sun. Come to him and make friends with him, right? Uh, Make amends with God through faith in this Messiah. Take refuge. Take refuge in the Christ. And indeed, whenever we talk about the time of the end and the final judgment, should not that be the thing that we emphasize with everyone around us? And should that not also be the thing we ask of ourselves? Have you taken refuge in Christ? A day of judgment will come. And none will stand, none will pass through it, none will be able to live beyond it unless they are found in Christ, being sheltered under his wings, wearing his righteousness as their own. None will be able to pass this final judgment as they stand before that great white throne, the books being opened, and they're judged according to the things that they have done in this flesh. We need to think soberly about these things, brothers and sisters. And if you are not in Christ, you especially need to think soberly about these things. The Lord warned us that when we stand before him, when those who are not in Christ stand before him on that last day, they'll be judged even for every idle word spoken. Have you thought of that? Have you thought of that? That we will be judged, not just for the big things, you know, the the significant moments in our lives, but for even the idle words that we speak beyond that, The Lord revealed to us that we will be judged even when it comes to the thoughts and intents of our heart. How could anyone think that they will stand before God righteous in themselves on that last day? No, we need to find shelter in Christ. We need his righteousness as our own. Thirdly, I wonder if all of this teaching concerning the time of the end is having an effect upon the kind of person that you are. The Apostle Peter had some things to say about the time of the end. And Peter also expected his teaching to have an effect upon his audience. After talking about the time of the end, he said these words, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, since all of these things will pass through judgment, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He's speaking to Christians If all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what kind of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness? And I think the reference here to the rewarding of the people of God in Revelation chapter 11 should especially bring this home to us as we understand that all will pass through judgment and that a new heavens and new earth will be ushered in and that the things of this world will be no more. Should it not have a profound impact upon the way that we live our lives in the here and the now and what it is that we invest into, how we spend our time, what we are passionate about, what it is that we invest into in this world. It should indeed have a profound impact upon us and I think we need to think more soberly about these things. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your holy word. We are thankful for what it reveals. We could not know this otherwise. We could not know this by going out and looking up at the sky or the mountains or the stars. General revelation is limited in what it can say, but your word has revealed it to us. Your your, your inspired word has given us a glimpse into the time of the end, and we are grateful for it, Lord. For now we can begin um, or continue to order our lives according to these truths. I pray, Lord, for those who have not begun 
I pray for those who have not thought about the time of the end, that they would, and that they would indeed begin to order their lives according to these truths. Lord, may the first thing that happens be that they run to Christ for shelter. May they run to him for refuge, seeing that he alone has provided a way of salvation for us. Lord, and for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would help us to order our lives more and more according to these truths, that we would think carefully about all that we think, say, and do. Lord, and that we would live in such a way that we store up treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. Help us, Lord, we pray. And it is in Christ's name that we say these things and all of God's people say, amen.